Hello, fabulous listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Old Bodies Outside. This is your host, Brian Peterson. This episode's guest is Reagan Chastain, who is a thought leader in weight science, weight stigma, health, and healthcare. She has spent years as a speaker, writer, researcher, board-certified patient advocate, and multi-certified health and fitness professional. Furthermore, she is the author of the following book, Fat, the Owner's Manual. And she is the editor of The Politics of Size, Perspectives from the Fat Acceptance Movement. She is also the co-author of the book titled Love It, 234 Inspirations and Activities to Help You Love Your Body. Additionally, she writes a newsletter titled Weight and Healthcare. Also, Reagan is a national dance champion, triathlete, and marathoner who owns the Guinness World Record for Heaviest Woman to Complete a Marathon. Reagan, it's a pleasure to have you on Old Bodies Outside. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, yeah. So how long have you been an expert in weight science and weight stigma? I think I saw one of your books was maybe published about 10 years ago. Yeah, so I actually started learning about this 20 years ago for myself. At the time, I was still really enmeshed in diet culture, and I was trying to find the best diet. I had yo-yo dieted for years, and so I'm such a nerd. My background is research methods and statistics, and so I did a uh, literature review of the research around weight loss interventions, and like I was not in school. I didn't publish. I had a corporate job. This is just the kind of nerd that I am in my life. And that was what got me started on this. And then um, I started uh, writing about this um, on a, a, my personal blog basis with that in 2009. And I went full time in 2012. So I've been at this for a while. Wow. I love, you know, I needed the, 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 the push from grad school to dig into literature. I love that you did that independently. <laughs> and I guess that is kind of like you know, nerdy to do, but I personally enjoy it. It's fulfilling my life and it helps me answer some personal questions that I have. I'll dig into Google Scholar and whatnot, you probably visit Google Scholar on a regular basis just to see what's out there. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of my work continues to be breaking down research and looking at the methodology behind it. Do the things that they cite really support the claims that they make? I do a lot of that work within weight science. And so that nerdiness is still with me today. Yeah, no, I'm really I'm really thankful that you said that. And that's something that is, is really important to do. It's really important to be skeptical and question, check the structure, check the methods. Can this research be validated? Um, you know, I think sometimes in my role, I see research out there and I question my head, like, can that be validated? Like, how do we know that that actually was objective? Yeah, I think it's hard when we talk about weight science for people who are used to good research to understand how poor this body of research is in general. Like when you start to dig into it, things that would get you failed in freshman research methods as an undergrad get past peer review and get published and then get referenced and get used all the time within this science. And so that was what was, I think, really surprising to me. Like I was very aware of like racism within research, uh, lack of trans and non-binary representation, a lot of those things. But I really thought we were all together on like math or my conclusion should match my data. And it turns out within the weight science realm, that is often just not the case. Wow. Wow. Well, that's awesome that you're getting in there and disrupting that because that needs to be disrupted. Yeah. And certainly people have been doing it since long before I've been around. There are people, you know, since before I was born, um, Lucy Aframore published a great paper about validity of 
the science in dietetic articles that really breaks down. And it's so frustrating because this article was written so long ago and it could have been written today. It's the same mm. things that we continue to see within the research that are just really frustrating from a point of view of somebody who understands research methods, but also as somebody who is, gets harmed by this research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we springboard into um, some questions here? And one of the first questions I was going to ask was, what does the current research say about weight and health? Yeah, so we've got about uh, a century of research that looks at weight loss interventions. But before I get into that, in terms of just weight and health, there's this assumption that if being higher weight is correlated with the health issue, right? So we've got a ton of uh, research that says, okay, higher weight people get this health issue more often. And then that's where they stop. And they say, okay, so obviously being higher weight causes the health issue and obviously losing weight would solve this. And none of that is scientific, right? With the first thing you learn in research methods is correlation does not imply causation. Just because two things happen at the same time does not mean one causes the other, even if it's a you know common belief that it does. And this is where a lot of weight science breaks right down in a really frustrating way. Because within health research, we use correlation all the time. Right? Sometimes the, the cause can't be found. The human body's complicated. We don't know everything. But it's still irresponsible to make that claim without investigating confounding variables. Exactly. I was, yeah. Yeah. And that's where everything falls apart. Because we know there are three well-researched confounding variables. So weight stigma, the experience of weight stigma, weight cycling or yo-yo dieting, and health care inequalities that fat people experience, all of these are correlated with the same health issues to which being higher weight is correlated. I mean, in fact, Bacon and Aframore in their paper found that um, the entirety of the excess mortality that was attributed to quote unquote obesity, both in Framingham and the NHANES could be actually attributed to the, the outcomes of weight cycling or yo-yo dieting, wow. which is the most common outcome of any weight loss attempt and which is none of these confounding variables are typically even mentioned and certainly not controlled for in these studies. Wow. Wow. And so there's that piece. And then, so the first, the first idea that, okay, if this incidence is higher then it must be the weight and the, the uh, comparison I often use is cis male pattern baldness. So we know that cis male pattern baldness is incredibly highly correlated with cardiac incidence. And if they treated it like they treated weight, they would have said, Oh, well, we got to get these people to grow hair. Obviously, that's the difference. Obviously, if we can get them to grow hair, we'll bring down their risk of cardiac incidence. And so let's calculate how expensive these people are. Let's have really dangerous interventions so they can grow hair. Like all of that would stem from the same thinking that we're using right now when we talk about weight and health. So that's the first big problem. And then the second is, even if being higher weight causes health issues, that does not mean that having people lose weight will solve them, right? That's again, another huge leap. And the first problem with that is that, in fact, about 100 years of research shows that almost everyone, about 95%, um, when they attempt intentional weight loss, they will lose weight short term and gain it back long term. And up to 66% of people will gain back more than they lost. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being fat or becoming fatter. I think there's something deeply wrong with the healthcare intervention, or at least what we're calling a healthcare intervention, that is prescribed to about 70% of the population that fails about 95% of the time and has the opposite of the intended effect up to 66% of the time. And that's what we're talking about with intentional weight loss. Um, and I think one of the things that is most frustrating about that is that the diet industry has known this from the start. 
So if you pull, for example, Weight Watchers original charter is clear that they're a repeat business model. So what they've done brilliantly is realize that there's this two-part biological response to attempted weight loss, where the body loses weight short-term while it's trying to figure out what's going on. And then it changes physiologically to become essentially a weight-maintaining, weight-regaining machine, right? Because it thinks there's not enough food and we're you know, having to do all this exercise. And so then the body changes. And the second part of that biological response is that people regain the weight and um, they end up right? 66%, up to 66% end up gaining back more than they lost. And so what the diet industry has done, and that the weight loss industry within the healthcare system as well, is take credit for the first part of the biological response, and then blame people or get them to blame themselves, get everyone to blame them for the second part of the same biological response. And then they come back to the weight loss industry. And so what we've got, we've got an industry, and especially within the healthcare system, that creates weight cycling, which again is correlated with these same negative health outcomes. So I think that that's sort of two ways that the research goes wrong, really basic premise errors that shouldn't be made ever um, and that get made all the time. Yeah, and the, the psychological toll has just got to be really high too. Yeah, yeah, because you're told, look, anybody who tries hard enough can lose weight. And I, I ended up, um, my attempts at weight loss devolved into an, a full-blown eating disorder for which I was hospitalized for a short amount of time. And I was very lucky that my recovery itself was atypically fast. But I was being told, I was in treatment for an eating disorder and being told by my doctors that I still needed to lose weight to be healthy. And I remember a doctor saying, I mean don't go crazy like you did before, but you're just a naturally bigger person. So you're going to have to worry about this your entire life, which is first of all, not something to tell someone in eating disorder recovery, but what I wish I would have heard and what I wish that doctor would have heard was him saying, you're a naturally bigger person. That was actually the helpful grain of truth in that, that I didn't get at that time. It took me years to get to the point to realize like, Oh, there's a diversity of body sizes. Um, the best way to create larger bodies is to have people diet. And that's what I've been doing my whole life. And so like, maybe we get out of this, you know, vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as you're saying that and explain that, I was thinking of an interview from, I had a representative from the body positive project on here. Her name is Elizabeth Scott. And I think they're up in the San Francisco Bay area. And one of the things that she was talking about with viewing bodies healthy is like, Hey, our bodies got here through so many rounds of evolution. And that's how we survived and got to the place that we're at today, uh, you know, in this century. And she's like, you know, there's got to be a level of respect and pride that, hey, this is what got my body and my, you know, genetics to this point to survive. This is how it works. This is great. This is, you know, I got a body that's meant for survival. Um, and she said that's something that she talks a lot about when she's worked. She works a lot with youth and adolescents with um, body positivity. Now, have you heard of the Body Positive Project? Oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 One other thing I want to make sure that I mention is that the way that we talk about and pathologize body sizes through the body mass index, as well as just weight stigma in general, these things are rooted in and inextricable from racism and anti-blackness. Mm. The, the birth of weight stigma, the creation of the body mass index, the way that we still talk about these things. So they're not just rooted in and inextricable from, but continue to disproportionately impact those communities. And I absolutely urge people to read Sabrina Strings, Fearing the Black Body, and Deshaun Harrison's Belly of the Beast to really learn about the ways that these things are rooted in racism, anti-Blackness, and white supremacy. And they're still, um, to this day, disproportionately harming those communities and continuing to push forward those horrible notions. 
Yeah. Do, do you mind expanding on that? I know that that might put you on the spot a little bit, but like I know the BMI index is just ridiculous, just ridiculous, but I did not know the history of it. Yeah. So I'll expand a little bit, but I want to be clear, like this is not my scholarship. This is a scholarship of black folks and other people of color. And so definitely go and learn from them, read those books, pay those folks um, to talk about body mass index a little bit. So it comes stems from the work of Ketelet, who was a statistician in the 1800s. And he was looking at, you know, what are the proportions of the quote unquote ideal man? And so he was measuring all of these different things. And he found that this height weight ratio that has become BMI was common among these folks who consider the ideal man. And he was pretty sure that the ideal man was a cis European white dude, because that's pretty much all he studied. And he said in his own writings that anything that uh, was different than that ideal proportion would be monstrous and deformed. Whoa. And so not great. And then that was pulled into current use. Um, a lot of which through Ansel Keys, who you may know from the person who thought the Minnesota starvation experiment was a good idea. Like he really was, you know, ha had his hand on a lot of this. And to this, even Ansel Keys is like, this was not a good idea, the way that we used BMI. And the way that it actually came into popular use was that insurance companies could use it to strike risk. And prior to Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, uh, insurance companies here in the States were allowed to refuse to treat or to cover pre-existing conditions. And at that time, a high BMI was considered a pre-existing condition. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So for 14 years, I personally could not get health insurance because my existence was considered a pre-existing condition that health insurance companies were not required to cover. Why does it seem like insurance companies' job is to get out of insuring people? Because it is. Because <laughs> it's for profit, right? They're not trying to give people the best health care for the money. They're trying to create the most profit. And in fact, in our cultures, those that are publicly traded, that's their fiduciary responsibility. Their fiduciary responsibility is not to the people who are their customers who pay them money and who need health care to survive and thrive. Their fiduciary responsibility is to their shareholders who want profit at any cost. And when you're willing to put profit in front of people's health and lives, then everything's on the table. And so they are always looking for ways to get out of covering people and get out of actually helping them get health care. That's the model of the business, you know, the entire industry, really. Yeah, what a hoax using BMI for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, gosh, gosh. So why don't we, we I, I appreciate you giving that history. I know you, it's not your expertise, but I think it's something that's really uh, important for the listeners to hear and a piece of history that a lot of people probably didn't realize. So I appreciate you sharing that and also sharing that, you know, it's not your expertise. Uh, so let's transition though into your expertise. Uh, and what is meant by medical stigma? Yeah, so medical medical stigma is a big thing. And that it's I'm glad you said it because we're talking about weight stigma, but there's a lot of like racism in medicine is very well known. Um, mortality risk among pregnant black folks is sky high. Like there's you know, and there's a, tons of transphobia within medical care. There's a lot of different stigma and there's a lot of intersections of that stigma. Right. So fat black trans people are going to face all of the stigma of each of those marginalizations and at the intersections of those using Kimberly Crenshaw's framework of intersectionality, right? So looking at weight stigma specifically, understanding there's a lot of intersections, basically it happens when the healthcare system either isn't built for fat people, it's built like for thin bodies or 
and or to the exclusion of fat bodies, um, or it is creating unequal treatment of fat people. So, uh, and it happens in a lot of different ways. So we think about often, first of all, practitioner bias, which is a real thing, right? So that can be implicit bias. We live in a society where there's a ton of anti-fatness, so it's not surprising if they've internalized those views. Also, a lot of medical training teaches them to sort of stereotype fat patients to think of them as kind of walking, talking pathologies. We know from research, there's a ton of practitioner bias. There's also explicit bias, right? So implicit is you've internalized it, you're working from it unconsciously, really. Explicit bias is you know very well that you have negative beliefs and stereotypes about fat people and you're working from those on purpose, right? So that's another kind of bias, but it goes way beyond that. So it's about the fact that research often doesn't include fat people. And then when the uh, tools and best practices and pharmacotherapies that come out of that research don't work as well for fat people, they blame fat bodies and say the solution is weight loss. So that there's that piece of it. Or we have research and it isn't used. So vaccine needles are something I've obviously been talking a lot about, where we know research from the 90s told us that higher weight people need longer needles to get into the deltoid muscle in the arm. Otherwise, you just are giving the vaccine into adipose tissue, which doesn't have enough blood flow to properly diffuse. We know that there are studies on it. It's very clear. And yet I had to call around like multiple pharmacies for myself to get a correctly sized needle and then argue with the pharmacist when I got there that it was really necessary, right? So there's that piece of it too. Um, And there's also structural stigma. And this is a huge issue because you cannot self-love your way out of structural oppression. So structural stigma is, again, when things that fat people need are not available in sizes that accommodate them. And that can be everything from a chair in the waiting room to a blood pressure cuff, a gown, an MRI machine, surgical tools. All of those things typically are created or were created for thin bodies and are sometimes retrofitted to try to work with fat bodies and sometimes are not. Um, And so like I was talking to a PA program at a medical school and they were talking, one of the students there was working in an emergency room and was talking about how a patient wasn't accommodated by the MRI that they had. And therefore that patient passed away when another patient would not have, because they simply couldn't get the scan they needed. And that in the morbidity mortality, the focus was on that the patient could have been smaller rather than the machine could have been bigger. So this is the thing too, that not only are fat people not accommodated, but then they get blamed for their lack of accommodation. And the idea comes forth that if the inequality is due to fatness, then the inequality is acceptable and the patient should have to change themselves to Mm. suit the medical system rather than the medical system changing. And to be clear, it's, there's a lot to do here. This is systemic change. And I don't think there are providers who are actually like harming fat people on purpose. I don't think they're the majority. I think this is the paradigm people are in. It's what they were trained to believe. They, you know, don't have time to dig into the studies and learn how they're wrong. They're supposed to be able to trust the conclusions of studies. They're supposed to be able to trust medical education that often ends up getting paid for by, you know, the industries whose drugs and uh, protocols that education is promoting. There's a lot of pieces there, but medical stigma in general creates a healthcare system where fat people simply cannot get the same care that a thin person would get. So, so in terms of the systemic change that is, is going on, where, where do we, where are we at with that? Are we kind of just like at the start of that? Or do you think that there's been some good ground gained lots more to go? Like what kind of progress has been made? Um, unfortunately, so a lot of ground was gained. And like I said, people have been doing this since long before I was born. 
but what's we're at this moment now where uh, the weight loss industry, and in particular the people who make weight loss drugs and sell weight loss surgeries, have realized like, okay, the this message that weight loss fails almost all the time is gaining ground, right? People are, it's happening to them. It's starting, and so what they have done is tried to essentially co-opt all of the work that weight stigma activists have done and fat activists have done to this point and use it to sell weight loss. So they're saying, you're right. Intentional weight loss does fail almost all the time. So what we're going to do is more dangerous, more expensive interventions to try to make you thin rather than saying, oh, there's this huge body of evidence that shows that understanding health is not an obligation of barometer worthiness or entirely within our control. If we're talking about individual recommendations, health supporting behaviors create the same or better benefits with far less risk, right? So instead we've got companies like Novo Nordisk claiming to be experts in weight stigma. But if you look, their approach to weight stigma is insurance coverage for their drugs so that people can get fit. And so one thing I always want to point out is that no matter what we believe, what anybody believes about weight and health, the idea that people who are being oppressed should have to change themselves to suit their oppressors is always wrong. Yeah, There's never a time when that is an okay message, but it's a really dangerous time, I think, because we're seeing these people who are giving talks and being, you know, in articles as weight stigma experts are actually coming from an anti-fat point of view. Wow. Right. So they're coming from the idea of like, I don't, we shouldn't stigmatize fat people, but we should definitely eradicate them from the earth and make sure no more ever exist. But like, you know, in a non-stigmatizing way and they're getting booked and interviewed and put forward as if they're experts in weight stigma. They're typically people in thin bodies, but not always. Um, but it's, it really is, I think a really dangerous moment where the diet industry is doing everything and the weight loss industry is doing everything they can to co-opt the idea of anti-weight stigma to become a tool to sell more dangerous and expensive weight loss interventions. Yeah, it sounds extremely dangerous. And it, for someone that's navigating this, is there a repository, a website, somewhere they can go to understand which companies are trustworthy and which companies are not? Is there something like that resource out there? Um, so a, a resource I use a lot, and this is a bit roundabout, but open openpayments.cms.gov will show you who your doctor is taking money from. Oh, cool. So often, so like there was a New York Times article talking about how important it is to get insurance coverage for these new weight loss drugs, the GLP-1 agonists, Wagovi, which is Novo Nordisk drug, et cetera. Every single expert quoted in that article had taken money from Novo Nordisk. None of that was disclosed. They're just giving their opinion as a doctor or as a researcher, but they all had taken money. And so I went to openpayments.cms.gov and that's how I discovered that. So you can enter a doctor's name and see like where they're taking payments from. You can also enter a company's name and see who they're giving payments to. So that's a, you know, a way to kind of follow the money. Uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's really difficult, right? Because another, I, I got started on this investigation by some residents uh, who are people who are, they finished medical school. Now they're in their final stage of, of their that first piece of training, right? And so they said, hey, we got invited to these two summits. One was about, quote, obesity, and one was about diabetes. And we read your newsletter, and so we checked it out, and these the people teaching these workshops get over $7 million from these industries. Oh and can you gosh. look into this? And I was like, indeed I can, and I looked into it, and I found out that not only that, but the people putting on the summit are a third-party vendor. And what they do is they take uh, medical weight loss industry and other like pharmaceutical company marketing 
they turn it into continuing medical education and then they sell it. And this is a huge deal because continuing medical education or CMEs, doctors are required to have this at various levels, depending on where they practice in their specialty, but it's supposed to be practice ready, ethical evidence-based medicine tested information. So you're supposed to be able to go to this and say, like whatever they said, you can put it in your practice right now. And so they think they're getting that. And what they're getting is marketing materials from the insurance company filtered through a third party. So it's really hard to your question to figure out like who's a good company and who's a bad company. You really have to, to dig. Yeah. So it's probably like a good suggestion recommendation to take the time to do that digging just to make sure that you're not being led astray by someone that's just trying to make money off of, you know, false information essentially. Yeah. And there's really interesting research that shows that even like a, a meal of less than $20 that was provided by the, by a pharmaceutical company increased doctor's prescription of that drug. Wow. So even these little payments, and there are tons of them where they're, you know, giving them lunch and providing some education, increased um, prescriptions. And it's one of the things I want to point out is that what Novo Nordisk is doing now is basically following in the footsteps of what Purdue Pharma did to market OxyContin. So they're basically taking every page out of that playbook that they can, and it's incredibly insidious. And it's hard to talk about it for too long without kind of sounding like, you know, a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist, because it is in many ways a conspiracy. But, um, but yeah, they really are like, they're creating these groups like the quote obesity action coalition that claim to be, uh, groups that advocate for higher weight people, but are in fact funded by and act as a lobbying arm for these, com these companies that are trying to create, uh, like work for their priorities, both like on a governmental level and on an individual prescriber level. Novo Nordisk just got busted in the UK and kicked out of their pharmaceutical trade organization for influence peddling. Wow. So there's, it's a lot of, that's sorry, I'm, I don't want to get no, too far astray, but there's a lot there. There's so much. I feel like we could have a two hour <laughs> conversation about that, but I did, <laughs> I did have a question about that. Like how do, are, how do we maintain the integrity and the ethics of doctor. I mean, like, is it that easy to take kickbacks or is there some sort of rules and regulations about doctors taking kickbacks? Um, there are rules and regulations, but it's still easy to take kickbacks. They have, you know, they have to be reported, but there's this belief that doctors are above that kind of influence. So if you ask doctors about this, which I do on a pretty regular basis, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, no, I took that money, but that doesn't influence what I do. Like I'm a doctor. And that's how also the New York Times gets away with quoting all these experts without any kind of disclosure of their financial ties, right? Oh, but they're academics and they're doctors and they would never, they're above influence. So sure they took, you know, $300,000 from Nova Nordisk, but I'm sure that didn't influence what they're telling our paper today. And it's wow. real, like, it's, the system is just not set up to protect people from this kind of influence. The system is not set up for that at all. And especially in the U S in the, the reason that Novo Nordisk got busted in the UK is that they have more stringent rules than we do. So Novo Nordisk yeah. is doing the exact same things here that they're doing there. They're also doing it in Australia, New Zealand, Dubai, like they've got Canada, they've got these like enclaves everywhere, but the UK is where they ran afoul of the, the actual rules about this. Yeah, gosh. Yeah, we are the United States of con your fellow citizens, which is really horrible. Um, but it's that greed and whatnot has been going on for a long time. 
Um, gosh, I can't imagine with, uh, you know, how do, how do people, you know, prepare? How, what are some recommendations you have for preparing if you go to the doctor's office and it's clear that they are just being guided by weight stigma? Like, how do you prepare for that? Yeah, so there's, there's different things you can do. And I want to start by saying that privilege plays a huge part in this, right? So I have a lot of privilege as a white person, cisgender, currently able-bodied, currently neurotypical. This is my area of expertise, right? So when I go into the doctor, even though there's a definite power imbalance there because they're the doctor and I'm the patient, I'm still walking in with a lot more privilege than a lot of other folks have. There's also what I call personality privilege, which is that I'm the kind of person who the conflict doesn't bother me. And when things get, you know, rough and angry, I get really calm and really clear thinking and not emotional. And that's just luck of the draw and privilege stuff. Like that's not any better than people who do get emotional or who do get cloudy and they're thinking that's a totally valid response to what's happening, but I will tend to be treated better than they will. And so when I think about how to prepare for this, I think about taking all of that into account as well. Yeah. Right? I appreciate what that, that person is walking in with. So, um, there, you can certainly talk about the evidence, you know, often when they recommend weight loss to me, I'll say, you know, it's my understanding that that fails about 95% of the time. And like up to 66% of the time has the opposite of the intended effect, both in the research and my personal experience. And often they'll say, oh no, that's true. And I'll say, well, then why are you recommending it? And they'll say, well, you just have to keep trying to get in the 5%. And like, not everybody took statistics, right? And they do teach statistics in medical school, but there's a lot that those people are trying to learn. So I understand if that was not the class they put their all into, but like I took statistics. So let me tell you, that is not how statistics work. You cannot keep trying till you get in the 5%. That's not in any way. Like that's how people no. rationalize the lottery. Come on. Um, so you can talk about it that way. One question I found that works for a lot of people is just to say, oh, well, so do thin people get this health issue or symptom? Nice. And they say yes, because they do. And you say, okay, well, what do you do for those folks? And sometimes that can bypass the whole thing. And sometimes practitioners don't want to have a weight loss conversation, but they feel really obligated to. So if you can lead them away from it, sometimes they'll be relieved, right? Like, oh yes, yes, they do. And physical therapy is what we recommend. And here's, you know, some things and sometimes not, right? It, the thing I always want people to know is that when you're dealing with weight stigma, practitioner bias, that becomes your problem, but it's not your fault fault. It shouldn't be happening. And you may not be able to solve it because of the power imbalance. And so I also think people have to do what they have to do to get the healthcare they need. So if somebody says, yes, I'm absolutely going to try that diet, but like I came in because my arm is severed. So if we could reattach that today and I'll try that diet tomorrow, like that would be great. Then you say what you have to say to get the healthcare that you need. And it shouldn't be that way. But unfortunately, sometimes that's how it is. You know, a lot of people like I live in Los Angeles and I currently am lucky to have good insurance. So if a, I don't like a doctor, I can find another doctor. There are a lot of them around. For some, I grew up in incredibly rural America where we were lucky to have a doctor. Mm. So someone like that doesn't have the options that I do to just be like, you're fired next. Yeah. Right. So finding ways to like work within that, um, it, it can be difficult, but it's something that you can learn and you can practice so that when you get in there, you know, you have a, a better chance. You also, some research and a lot of lived experience shows that if you bring another person, it's like, I'm a board certified patient advocate. I go to the doctor with people, but even if you just bring like your kind aunt, just having a second person in the room tends to improve doctor behavior when it comes to mistreatment and stigma. 
So do you think, and, and I know in terms of speaking in of people that live in more urban areas, because as you mentioned, you know, people that live in rural areas may not have options, but let's say in an urban environment where you have more options, and this is a very kind of broad question, but do you think there is any differences with how MDs or DOs approach individuals? Is there less weight stigma, maybe at DOs, or is it just kind of, it's all over the place? I found it's really all over the place and things are getting better. There are doctors, there are entire like weight neutral practices of medicine, right? There are whole, like you can go. So it's not, it's getting better. And it, when, even when I started, there was a lot less of it. And in talking to people who really were founders of the movement in the sixties, there was like almost nothing at that time. Right. So things are getting better. Practitioners are coming along as a speaker, which is most of the work that I do. My primary audience is healthcare practitioners. And I started doing this in 2009 and the Q and A's were straight up hostile, like beyond contentious people screaming at me, people walking out. Um, and, and at the time I used to talk about like patient engagement and stigma. And I was like, all right, this isn't working. Here's what we're going to do. Here's an hour and a half of research that shows that weight loss doesn't meet the requirements of ethical evidence-based medicine. Fight me. And then the Q and A's got much more productive. Cause I was like, if you're going to argue with me, you're going to need to be like packing some evidence. Don't come to me with everybody knows or whatever. And, but now I'm getting requested. And like back then it used to be like one person with authority booked me and then everybody else had to be there, which is so like not a great platform for teaching something like this. But, um, but now like people are requesting the education, people are already engaged with this. They're, if they're maybe not all the way there, but they're willing to talk about it and to kind of grapple with it a little bit. I'm really seeing that shift. And that really gives me hope, you know, that there are doctors out there who are, you know, moving forward on this. Yeah. That seems like it's definitely a definite indicator that change is happening. So that that's yeah. awesome compared to the hostility that you experienced in 2009. I guess that's where you, you have the ability and, you know, maybe you had the ability before that, but you got to practice it a lot of staying calm and clear thinking in those situations. Yeah. It's people who book me now. And again, I've just been doing this since 2009. There are a lot of people even with less privilege than me who have been doing it for longer, but, um, People will say now, like, you know, people might not be comfortable with everything you teach. And I'm like, no, no, that's fine. Like, I'm ready. Yeah. And I do think even when people come at it really kind of aggressively, I think that's important because I think it's important to show that what I'm talking about stands up to scrutiny. Right. It's not like oh, you can't ask the hard questions. It's like, no, let's talk about the hard questions. Like, let's get into this because this idea that, oh, it's obviously this is true. Obviously fat people are unhealthy. Obviously being thinner would make them healthier. It's reached like urban legend, urban myth status, right? You, everybody believes it. And there's a belief that everybody knows is just as good as evidence. You know, so when, if I get asked to debate somebody and I'm like, what about this study? What about this study? And they're like, look, everybody knows it's obvious. And so there, it's not like we're not having an evidence debate we're having a debate between of course and no please look at this it's there's a, a story i tell that john robeson who's one of the founders told me we all know like the galileo story right like they developed a telescope figured out the earth revolves around the sun they called my heretic made him recant house arrest terrible but the part of the story that john told me that i didn't know was that his contemporaries refused to look through the telescope oh wow so it wasn't that they were like, this telescope is poorly made or, hey, dude, your math is off. They just wouldn't look. And that is what I sometimes see from not just healthcare practitioners, but 
people in, from all walks of life when it comes to this idea. They're so sure that they're right, that they're unwilling to look at anything else or consider anything else. And as I've been teaching this, I've seen people become at least more willing to look through the telescope. Yeah, I, I would say socially and in a lot, a lot of places, there's a lot of signaling that is obvious out there that people are not looking through the telescope. In fact, <laughs> I um, interviewed a guest last week and he lives in Northern England. He loves bike touring around. So he's got this awesome gravel road bike and he does like 20 mile rides and whatnot. And um, he went down to London with his bike, I think and was biking around and got onto the subway and some guy like instantly saw him walk on with his bike and made a joke about his size because he's out biking around. It's like, Hey, you're too big to be biking around or something like that. And it was like, that's an example of not, you know, being able to look through the telescope, but going back to the medical profession and some of their trainings, do you know if there is any level of social psychology training? I mean, doctors got to go over so much training, as you mentioned, and there's a lot to focus on and prioritize. Um, but gosh, like, you know, interacting with patients, the social social psychology behind that to me seems really important. And if they don't have that, I think that's really wonderful that you are a board certified patient advocate, you know, to help people navigate those really, really extremely challenging processes. Yeah, I mean, I, they do like there's, you know, in medical school, they bring in actors and they do they do work on like patient interactions. But I think the problem is our medical school system is so messed up. The amount of information students are supposed to be grasping what they have to like let go of in order to pass what they need to pass like it's it's a really difficult system to navigate and it isn't really designed to churn out doctors who are like you know really rooted in compassion and really questioning the evidence because they're just trying to pass the step one pass the step to get on to the next thing and like get all of this information crammed into their heads. It's, it's an incredibly difficult environment in which to learn. And I, I, I do talk to a lot of medical students and I also hear from medical students who are like, what can I do? My God, everything they're teaching me is so like fat phobic. And, you know, one of the things they talk about is like, there's not time to question and it's not a culture to question. So you're not supposed to say, I don't think oh what you're gosh. teaching me is right. You know, you're supposed to learn it, spit it out on the test, next and this is i'm speaking very broadly different programs are different but on the whole this is what i have heard from you know those i speak to and seen in the medical schools i've you know taught at that so what i teach is to say hey you know i found this research and i'm really confused because it doesn't seem to match what we're learning can you help me understand to like work within those power imbalances in that culture but i also say if you just have to do what you have to do to get through medical school, then do that. Right. Because people are like, I know better. It's so frustrating, but I also can't make an enemy of this professor. And I get that. So activism isn't always the right thing either. Right. I could see that the gates would shut pretty quick if you were to be questioning and have a little activism. Um, Reagan, if you went through medical school, do you think you'd get kicked out? <laughs> <laughs> if I had gone through medical school before I did all of this, I think I would just be making the same mistakes that I teach people not to make. And it's, it's interesting because that's probably the first question I get asked from a lot of doctors is, where did you go to medical school? And that's my answer. I didn't. And if I did, I probably would be making the same mistakes I'm talking about, right? If I went through now, I, I do feel like I would have a very difficult time getting through medical school because yeah. I just, you know, and that's, again, that's a personality thing. And maybe I could just sublimate it all and just get through it. But it would be, I don't know. I think it'd be pretty hard for me right now. 
Well, it's so important to question and to have skepticism. I mean, that just advances knowledge and understanding. And, you know, to ask why is this study not including confounding variables? Why is it just simplistically making these conclusions out of nowhere? Um, those questions should be allowed to ask. But I, I, I agree with you. I understand that, you know, a lot of medical students are investing so much money, so much time. They need to get through the gates. They need to get to their practice. And then, uh, you know, that's the time that they're going to hopefully adjust. Hopefully. Yeah. And they really should be able to believe that they're being taught correct information in medical school, right? They should not have to be, it's the same thing as like doctors shouldn't have to dig into the data section of a study to find out that when they said the weight loss was significant, they meant people lost 2.9% of their body weight and then started gaining it back right away, right? That should be in the conclusion. That shouldn't be something you have to dig for. So there's the whole system really puts the impetus on people to question massive power structures in ways that they don't necessarily have the time, money, or privilege to do. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, gosh, that's, um, well, that was going to answer my next question, which was how did doctors get so entrenched in the weight centric paradigm of health? So I think we, we got that one covered there. <laughs> um, so it is a weight neutral paradigm becoming it's, you know, we mentioned it earlier, we talked about it earlier, how far away are we, which I guess that's not even a fair question. I was going to say, how far away are we from that becoming the norm? But I, that's a hard question to answer, but it is being adopted more and more. It sounds like it's, yeah, we're making progress. And I feel like a lot of the answer to how far depends on how strong the pushback is against Novo Nordisk, against bariatric surgery interests, against the people. Because in talking about how doctors got so enmeshed, it's important to understand how enmeshed the weight loss industry is in the healthcare system. So like in 1998, there was a committee that recommended to the NIH that the, the BMI be changed in a way that made about 29 million Americans, quote, overweight literally overnight. Whoa. Seven of the nine people on that committee made their money from weight loss. The head of the committee was a former executive director and current board member of Weight Watchers. And he was also the chair of the group that wrote the guidelines for treatment of higher weight people for the NIH. And that's just like one tiny example. Again, this could be yeah. like a, a massive conversation. And so they're not, it's not just that they're lobbying, it's that they're in these groups driving them. Yeah. Right. In ways yeah. that are really insidious. And so I think a lot of how long it's going to take to move to a weight, weight neutral paradigm is about how strong the pushback is to the ways that they're trying to manipulate the ideas of weight stigma to meet their financial goals. Um, and it's frustrating, too, because a lot of because we've had this, quote unquote, war on obesity, a ton of research money is earmarked only for research around preventing weight gain or creating weight loss. It's not about how do we support health? And there's not a lot of money in that, right? So there's there are good studies, Matheson et al, Way et al, Cooper Institute Longitudinal Studies, et cetera, uh, Gazer and Angotti from 2021 that show that, again, when we're looking at just personal behaviors and understanding that none of this is all within people's uh, ability to change and that health is not an obligation or barometer for this, that health supporting behaviors are a better predictor of current and future health than is weight or weight loss, right? There's good evidence of that, but that evidence tends to be observational. There aren't a lot of uh, RCTs about it because it's very expensive to fund those and the research is earmarked for something else. So it's also a problem of getting money to create the research that supports this paradigm. 
Yeah, I could see that for sure. And I know that I my research has to do with conservation of national parks, United States Forest Service lands and whatnot. But, um, you know, I, I'm currently putting together a proposal to compete for a grant from National Park Service. And um, it's an exciting one. And but that uh, research opportunity, that grant award says you need to deliver information about these objectives. And they keep it very streamlined. Like you got to do A, you got to do B, you got to do C. Um, they even say like, you know, like you need to have like this type of equipment and whatnot. And um, it, it's like, gosh, if I want to get that groundwork, I need to put together methods right exactly in that railroad track. And I'm already, you know, stuck in these in this grooves here, opposed to like, you know, thinking outside of it, maybe there's something that can be done and whatnot. And so the way that researchers approach, it's not like researchers do not have the opportunity too often to say, hey, I'm going to research this, I'm going to research that, I'm going to research that. It's more so where's the money, which is also kind of an unfortunate aspect too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge part of why we keep getting the same research because the re and the it's important to understand too, just real quick, the way that um, interventions are approved by the FDA is on a risk benefit analysis. So we know that all interventions come with some degree of risk. So the question is, does the risk uh, or does the benefit outweigh the risk? And so this mountain of evidence that just, you know, uncritically tries to conflate weight and health that just says, yep, higher weight people have higher incidence of this without looking at confounding variables that then gets used to say to the FDA, well, sure, our drug might kill people or sure, this surgery might kill people or have extreme side effects. But look how terrible it is to be fat. It's absolutely worth the risk. And so we've got a healthcare system that's now built on the tenant that it's worth risking fat people's lives and quality of life to make them thin. Wow. And that all stems from this mountain of terrible fail freshman research class, you know, correlational nonsense, but it gets used uncritically then to support this, this paradigm that is incredibly profitable. Yeah. I love that correlational nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how, how large economically is the weight loss industry? I mean, is it like 500 billion bucks? Do you have any clue? I mean, so I it imagine. was, yeah, so it's big. So it went from uh, 60 billion in 2012 to 72 billion in 2019. And then it continues to grow. And the thing that I want to point out is that if their product works, that couldn't happen. Yeah. Right? You could not have that kind of growth. And like, so Novo Nordisk, they did a shareholder call about their new weight loss drug Wagovi. And they uh, told their shareholders that they were going to have the fastest ever post FDA launch and that they were going to double their quote obesity sales by 2025. And now they've redoubled that goal. So they're up to three point something billion dollars that they expect to make by 1995, by, not 1995, sorry, by 2025 on with this new weight loss drug. Um, with wow. research that shows that weight loss levels off and has actually started to go up by 104 weeks and that if people go off the drug, they gain their weight back incredibly fast, much faster than they lost it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, social media has done some justice in regard to these topics or do you think social media has exasperated it? It's a bit of a double-edged sword. I mean, I think that it has created community in ways that were much more difficult prior to social yeah. media, right? You've got these enclaves of people doing this work, but it's very difficult for them to know who each other is and get together. And now you've got this massive thing. And so if people want to access this information, they're more likely to be able to do it. If people are looking for, you know, fat affirming community, weight neutral health community, anti-diet community, that's much easier to access. Um, but it's also a way to push out diets, right? So, and these are industries that have 
you know, millions and billions of dollars to, to market. Um, and the other side of that sword is the way that even within these like anti-diet and body positive and fat affirming communities, weight neutral health communities, we're still kind of centering a, an approximation of a beauty stereotype that's built in thin white cishet current able-bodied youth. And so body positivity was created to be a radical fat accepting platform. And it has really in a lot of ways been co-opted by thin kind of chunky white women. And I want thin kind of chunky white women to love themselves. I just don't think they need to be first in line. But, and then what happens is not only do they co-opt it, but then they start making conditions. Oh, it's okay to be fat as long as you're yeah. quote healthy, you're quote able-bodied. And so it becomes a thing that then actually not just co-ops the, the movement, but then pushes out the people that it was meant for. And so yeah. that's also a huge issue as well where people, and I, you know, as a white person, I benefit obviously from a ton of that privilege as well, but there's, so that's another complicating piece of the social media bit of it. Yeah. So I just released a podcast episode uh, yesterday with sociologist, Dr. Gemma Gibson out of England. And she has a manuscript out there uh, that talks about the morals of the good fatty to fit within that body positive aspect that you just mentioned. And that was a really interesting conversation to kind of hear um, about her research and her study and examination of that, because it is true. It absolutely is true. It's like, Hey, like body positivity, but you got to stick right in here. You got to yeah. do this. And you got to do that. Yeah. And as you know, I'm somebody who likes to do fitnessy things. And so I benefit. So for those who aren't like clear, and I think that episode sounds amazing and go listen to it. Also um, the, the idea of like the good fatty, bad fatty that the, you know, it sounds a lot like people will say, well, I'm okay with fat people who like eat quote, right. Or exercise, but those ones who are sedentary and only eat fast food, I'm not cool with that. And first of all, any group of people could be divided into those two categories. Yeah, right? There are two absolutely. kinds of blonde people. There are two kinds of Rotarians, like whatever. Um, but also it becomes just a justification for fat phobia, right? And I benefit from that because I participate in fitnessy things. So it's extra important that I point out that that is absolute crap. I've done both. I can tell you for sure, completing a marathon and watching a Netflix marathon, those are morally equivalent activities, right? But we live in this society with toxic fitness culture that tells us that we're better if we participate in fitness. And so for fat people, it can be tempting to say, I can get a modicum of better treatment or privilege if I say I'm better than other fat people who don't do this thing that I do. And so that's a thing that is problematic as well. So I'm super excited that you did that episode. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was a really great episode. It really was. Uh, Dr. Gibson was, was really, really wonderful. Um, but you know, it was, it's interesting, you know, trying to gain that social capital playing into this dichotomous thinking and dichotomous thinking rarely works out well, um, because you start creating opposing groups and it's, it's, we're all imperfect human beings. They're just kind of, you know, we're not this or that. It's just kind of, we're there. And I feel like that dichotomous thinking is, uh, really hurts and causes more problems. Yeah, for sure. So what's the, uh, the difference between the body positive movement and health at every size movement? So that is such a good question. So uh, health at every size, first of all, is the branded trademark of the Association for Size Diversity and Health, um, okay. ASDA. And so that is a like a flavor or a part of what I would overall call the weight neutral health movement. So body positivity focuses on um, having... I, and these, again, I'm not the arbiter of what these things are. This is just how I look at them. So body positivity to me is about having a peaceful relationship with your body. 
And so for some people that's loving their body, for some people that's getting to a place of body neutrality where they're like, whatever, it's my body, I don't care. Like there's a lot of different ways to do that, but it's about moving away from a culture that says you should hate your body, um, that your body is a sign that you're a bad person, you're immoral, et cetera. So that's to me, body positivity. It can also be about teaching resilience for living in a world with a ton of weight stigma. And I want to say weight stigma hurts people of all sizes. Even people who fit into that stereotype of beauty then have that constant fear of losing that privilege, right? But it does the most harm to those at the highest weights and those with multiple marginalized identities. So it, it harms everybody, but not equally, which I think is important to understand. But so body positivity seeks to give people the tools to be in a peaceful relationship with the body that they have, even in a world that may tell them that body is bad. Weight neutral health is about a paradigm um, that says that we have to, to move away from this idea of body size manipulation being seen as a path to health. That instead we say there's a diversity of body sizes, people are lots of different sizes for lots of different reasons. And our goal is to create a society where people can thrive at, in whatever body they're in, right? So in individual choices, that might mean health supporting behaviors rather than weight loss, but it also means bringing down barriers to health, including oppression, including access and increasing access. It means working on social determinants of health, because one of the things that we've really done is create this quote unquote personal responsibility idea around health that suggests that if we just do the right things, we'll be healthy when in fact, there are so many things outside of our control that impact our health. And so weight neutral health says, we're not just going to look at individual things, right? Health supporting behaviors versus weight loss. We're also going to look at what could we do? How could we make public health about decreasing barriers and increasing access rather than about making fat people's health the public's business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, 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 that making it the public's business, uh, what's your advice for when people just decide to offer up unsolicited advice about other people's bodies? Like how, 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 could, how should that be handled? How can we handle that? I mean, I guess it's different for every person, but what's your recommendations? Yeah, this is funny because I have a whole workshop on this. So I'll try to pick a few different options. Um, so I um, so I lived in the South for a long time. So that sort of bless your heart approach is one thing, you know, oh, bless your heart. I can't believe you thought that was appropriate to say, but it's okay. Um, or uh, just directly saying, oh, I'm not accepting unsolicited uh, thoughts about my body. Um, you know, saying something like that, uh, just walking away can be an option. Changing the subject can be an option. I have a friend who just, she's like super fascinated with monkeys. So she just memorized a bunch of monkey facts. And when somebody says something about like diet or weight loss, she literally just throws out a fact. Like, did you know that silver that like silverback gorillas will throw spider monkeys as weapons? And like, I've seen it in action and it is a conversation changer, right? <laughs> Nobody's ready for that. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be that where it could be like knitting or your, you know, what your world of Warcraft rating group did, like whatever your thing is. Um, but changing the subject can be an option or walking away. Um, I think the most important thing I always want people to remember is like, this is becoming my problem. This is not my fault. This should not be happening. Uh, um, and so they're, you know, then deciding based on, because there's so much that goes into it. It's culture. If it's your family, it's religion. Sometimes it's, you know, power and privilege. So how somebody responds in each individual situation is going to be so different. But whatever they do, understanding that they're not the problem, that this person's behavior is the problem and that a culture that tells them this is a good idea is a problem, that they're 
you, this isn't your fault. This should not be happening to you. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of the the things that has kind of threaded through our conversation is the intersectionality of um, marginal, multiple marginalized identities. And for those people that, you know, have that intersection that it's very apparent for other people to see, gosh, it's gotta be hard. It's gotta be like a compounded effect. And when we talk about medical weight stigma, you can see the intersections. Uh, for example, there are um, BMI-based healthcare denials, which is where surgeries or other procedures will be denied based on body mass index, which I consider holding healthcare hostage for a weight loss ransom. But for example, for people who are trans or non-binary and want gender-affirming procedures, that's one of the most common groups who get these BMI-based denials. Um, and I'm just in the middle, I just on Wednesday, it's coming out my piece about how to fight these denials for people who need gender affirming care, because we find that, for example, if a cisgender person wanted the same procedure cosmetically, they might be approved. I believe it. For a cosmetic, but if somebody wants it as a gender affirming procedure, they'll be told they have to lose weight before they can get it. And so it's these critical procedures for both physical and mental health are being denied unless and until people lose weight, which they are not likely to do, especially if it's a large amount of weight, right? If it's 10 pounds, maybe they can crash diet knowing that they're likely going to gain that weight back. And people do. And I don't, you know, what people are, are put through to have to get the surgeries they need, I don't judge people at all. And I don't blame people for what they choose, but it shouldn't happen. What we need is one, to get better at doing surgery on fat people. And two, in the meantime, figuring out how we can make patient-centered decisions. When I was advocating for a patient. And she said, my surgeon said there's a hundred percent rate of complications for this surgery at my BMI. And I was like, that does not sound right to me. Yes, so I dug right. into it like a hundred percent. So I dug into it and what it was, was there's a hundred percent increase in risk, which means instead of a 1% risk for this particular procedure for this patient, there would be a 2% risk, which yeah. I think this patient should be allowed to have informed consent about. And say, yep, I understand there's greater risk. I'll accept that. And there's, again, systemic things here with the way that surgeons are judged based on their stats. There's a, I'm working on a project to, to understand that better and see what could change systemically to, because currently surgeons are disincentivized from doing these procedures on fat patients. Oh, gosh. So that's a huge issue that has to be solved. So it's not, I mean, we need braver surgeons and then we need uh, systemic change so that we don't need braver surgeons, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, so I have two questions. One goes back to a little bit earlier in your explanation. You're, you're releasing some information. Is that tomorrow or in a week on Wednesday? Tomorrow is I'll have, so on weight and healthcare, I did a series about BMI based denials and I have a collection that was actually started by Deborah Gard, who's an incredible activist for joint surgery denials. It's basically resources that you can use to fight them. And okay. so tomorrow I'm putting out resources to fight uh, gender affirming procedure based. Perfect. Perfect. And where can the the listeners, so when, by the time I release this episode, this went, this will have passed. Um, but this is, we're talking about Wednesday, May 3rd. Um, this episode will probably be released, uh, about two weeks after our conversation today on May 2nd. Um, where can the listeners of old bodies outside go and find that information? Oh, so it's all published on weightandhealthcare.com. Okay. Nice. Nice. Okay. Second, P, second question is the de-incentivizing de, uh, de- surgeons. How, how is that looking? What types of strategies are being used to de-incentivize surgeons? Yeah, so the expected complication rates are calculated based on thin patients. 
and the system is based, everything that we do is based on thin people, the way the tools, the tables, the protocols, the pharmacotherapy. And so there's more and more research being done about fat patients, but in general, the, the complication rates are not based on surgeries for fat patients. So some studies, not all studies, but some studies find there are higher rates of complication for higher weight patients, both surgical complications and post-surgical perioperative healing kind of uh, complications. And so that's used as a reason to simply not give surgery to higher weight people. Now, the research is not clear that losing weight actually improves these risks, which isn't surprising. Like, (laughs) What you're asking people to do to lose weight is give their body less fuel than it needs in the hope that it eats itself and becomes smaller. So it doesn't seem like that would set you up for good surgical outcomes, right? Like if undernourishing patients was helpful, we would do it for all patients. Um, And so, but there's, again, it goes back to that same mistake we talked about at the beginning. Oh, well, if higher weight people have uh, higher risk, then we'll just make them into thin patients and their risk will be the same. That's not actually scientific thinking. No, and the research it's... doesn't bear that out. There's there are research that shows that weight loss prior to surgery either doesn't impact outcomes or negatively impacts outcomes. I would think so. I would think so. I think your body is going to go through significant stress with the surgery and needs to be nourished and, you know, have the health going, going into it versus restricting the health. Because otherwise, like, I feel like there's going to be lower levels of this or that. I don't know what. I'm not a doctor. I don't research that stuff. But my gosh, I feel like the body, just physiologically speaking, would it be able to protect itself through that stress? Yeah. And when you, it gets even more ridiculous, because often people who are denied surgery because their risk is too high are referred to weight loss surgery, a much more dangerous surgery about which there is far less data and a surgery that they don't need, right? Where we take a right. healthy functioning digestive system and put it into a disease state to force restriction and or malabsorption. So they'll say, oh, you can't have your arthroscopic knee procedure. It's too dangerous, but we're going to refer you to weight loss surgery. That's ridiculous. But what is happening is because that patient is at a higher risk of complications for their arthroscopic knee surgery, the surgeon is just passing the risk instead of saying, I, you know, I'll do the surgery. And if you have a higher rate of complications like that might affect my stats for complications and I'll deal with that. They're just transferring the risk back to the patient, right? Oh, I don't want to do surgery on someone who might have complications because it'll be reflected in my stats. And we don't, it's not like we're striating or anything. We just say like, if you don't have the same outcomes as thin people, then, you know, your surgeon may get punished for their stats. And so you don't get healthcare, which is wrong regardless. And so they just transfer the the risk back to the patient and say, you go get a different surgery. And if that surgery makes you thin enough, then I'll do the surgery you actually need. It's, it's nonsensical. It puts patients in so much risk. And what, you know, like I said, what we need is, braver surgeons now and better systems. So we don't need braver surgeons. And when I say braver surgeons, there are surgeons who operate. There's a person in OC who does knee replacements on patients over 500 pounds. And in interviewing orthopedists, when I say that, they all go, wow, right? That's that's a surgeon who says you deserve, even if your outcomes won't be the same as thin people, getting you in less pain and getting you more mobile, if that's your goal, that's a worthy goal of surgery. Even if you might have higher complications, even if this knee replacement might not last as long as a thin person's knee replacement, even if your pain might be less. And not to dig too deep a hole, but here we go back to the research, right? What we find in research is often fat patients are made to wait longer for the knee replacements, but the studies don't take that into account when they look at outcomes. So they're like, oh, fat people's outcomes weren't as good. Well, no, but they were much more advanced when they got the surgery because they were made to wait longer than thin patients. So it goes back to medical weight stigma, drives unequal care, drives research that supports more weight stigma. It's a vicious cycle. 
Yeah, what a vicious cycle for sure. And what a, a chain of reactions too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Reagan, this has been a extremely fascinating, awesome conversation. I, you, I am so impressed with your level of expertise. Uh, I mean, it really does seem like you have a PhD, an MD, a DO2. Like, your level of expertise is amazing, and uh, I really am impressed. And so, with being so impressed, I'm curious to hear about what projects are you currently working on. What kind of stuff are you looking towards for summer of 2023? Thank you for asking. So I have an ongoing project called the Hayes Health Sheets, H-A-E-S, healthsheets.com. And that provides um, diagnosis-specific weight-neutral care guides for practitioners and patients and advocates. So you can literally go and download like type 2 diabetes and see, okay, what are the weight-neutral ways to approach this? Oh, um, and cool. it also has a resource and research bank. So if you're also a fellow nerd, you can go and kind of dig into the research that I talked about today there. I have a study going with Dr. Leslie Owen about weight stigma and iatrogenic harm in the highest weight patients, uh, because often even weight stigma research itself, first of all, often it comes from a place of weight stigma, but also it leaves out the highest weight people. And so our goal is to see not just how are these people experiencing medical weight stigma, but also how is that weight stigma harming them to start looking at, because often weight stigma is looked at as like, oh, it's a bad thing. Like it probably makes the patient feel bad, but we wanna look at, no, like iatrogenic harm means harm that stems from care. So mm -hmm. how is this weight stigma actually impacting the care and health of these patients? Mm -hmm. So that's a, a study that we are currently working on and we've got our interviews done and we're getting to the writing part. So I'm super excited about that. And I'm also um, doing some work with the Campaign for Size Freedom with uh, NAFA, the National Association um, for Fat Acceptance, and FLAIR, the Fat Legal Advocacy Rights and Education Network. And that project's goal is to get weight and height as a protected class in state and national laws. Nice, nice. And, and for those listeners out there, do you mind sharing your Instagram profile? Because I looked at your Instagram profile going into this conversation, and honestly, like I had, I learned so much from just going back to your post back to like maybe the start of 2023, and then you know, right now it's May second of 2023, but just going back to January first, you release a lot of great information. But you, what I like too is that you, in your your uh, captions, you also provide links to other profiles to websites resources for people to use to help navigate this really hor really hard uh, issue. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So it's just Reagan Chastain, R-A-G-E-N-C-H-A-S-T-A-I-N. And yeah, I try to put out, you know, some combination of information and education and entertainment through there. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very edu educative and uh, educational. And also, if, if there are, is anyone or organization or agency that would like to invite you to be a speaker, how can they connect with you to start organizing that? So my speaking site is sized, S-I-Z-E-D, for F-O-R, success.com. You can find all the information that way. You can also shoot me an email. I'm always very happy to, to chat about that. Speaking is my favorite thing to do, so... Yeah, yeah. Well, you've been doing it for quite a while. Uh, that's <laughs> I was so only cool. ever good at talking, so I had to find a way to make a career out of it. I have no <laughs> skills. Well, that's wonderful. You're doing some great stuff for this world, and I, I loved everything I heard in this episode. Uh, this was fantastic. I really appreciate the delivery of quality content and accessible content for our listeners out there. So, Reagan, thank you so much for being on Old Bodies Outside. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for having the podcast. It's so, like I said, it's such a tough thing to do, and I'm super grateful to get to be a little part of it. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're welcome. 
Okay, let's call it an episode.